Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Mike Whitmire, co-founder, CEO of Flowcast, inactive CPA. Welcome to Blood, Sweat, and Balance Sheets, the podcast where talk with finance executives, entrepreneurs, founders about, um, you know, quite frankly, whatever I want. So today's topic is really fascinating to me. We're going to be talking about alternative investments and all these weird places that people are placing their money today. So as we're editing this, we will bump that notion up to the front where this is not financial advice. We are just a couple of idiots who like putting our money into dumb things and do not <laughs> do not listen to us with any of this. We'll make sure we, we put that disclaimer up at the front of the episode here. And we have two sort of guests on the different end of the spectrum today. So we're going to start with uh, Troy, a member of the Flowcast customer success team. Troy, you want to go ahead and introduce yourself and a little little context on your background? Yeah, awesome. Thanks, Mike. So my name's Troy. I've been with Flowcast for a little over four years. Before joining Flowcast, I came from the public accounting route, similar to Mike. I did uh, an audit for two years and then found Flowcast shortly thereafter through a really funny Google search of typing Lakers and accounting that Flowcast and really excited to talk about alternative investments because I feel it's a really hot term right now. And a lot of the um, young professionals and also it doesn't even matter what age you are, a lot of people from all different types of like backgrounds are getting to this space. So really excited to talk to you both you and Rob about this. Definitely. And Rob Meinhardt, our board member, one of our board members and original investor in Flowcast has been with us for the whole ride. Um, Rob, you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, thanks, Mike. Uh, my name is Rob Meinhardt. I've been a uh, Serial entrepreneur, started a couple of companies, um, had some success with that, and then had an opportunity to get into venture capital where I got introduced to Mike and uh, worked with this Flowcast team for a number of years. So right now I'm a board member for Flowcast and also run a small uh, venture production studio called Furious Collective. So that's my background. Awesome. And Rob is a um, you know seasoned investor as well. You've uh... You're being modest, right? Yale guy, economics degree. You know what you're talking about in this space, right? Well, it's it's interesting, Mike. I, I a number of years ago, about ten years ago, I decided to get a financial advisor to manage all my personal money. Yeah. And so that's because I struck out mostly trying to play the market and invest for myself. But with one notable exception, I've done pretty well investing in private companies. And so I have a feeling that'll intersect a little bit with what Troy's talking about. Um, you know, so I, I have some philosophies and theories about how you can make some investments that are sort of like not accessible to the rest of the world or obvious to the rest of the world and, and have some success with that. Nice. Well, hopefully Flowcast is one of those and I'm, I'm working hard to try to make that happen for you. I'm a believer, Mike, you know that. Yeah. Oh, oh I know. So, I, so yeah, I'm like really excited for today. The catalyst for this podcast was I remember back when we were all together in the office working one night, Troy and I were talking about baseball cards and I think we moved into sneakers and then Rob stopped by and you heard us talking about some of this stuff. And you were kind of like, why are you idiots putting this amount of money into baseball cards? What's going on right now? And, you know, the pandemic has been like fascinating on all these markets and with the stock market going up, crypto going up, it just feels like people are looking for different places to put their money. And so I want to talk through it today. So I was thinking maybe we pretend like Troy is a, a wealth advisor, uh, a wealth manager in the alternative investment world. And he could give us a rundown on this and he's trying to earn Rob's business by pitching these other areas where he could put his capital to use in a more effective way. And we'll see how it goes from there. So I think some of the topics we want to cover off on are the sports card industry. That's fascinating to me where that's going. We could talk about cryptocurrency as well. Sneaker world, that's Troy's like real specialty. I think you're deep in that one. Maybe we can talk about like some of the retail arbitrage things that people are doing, just accumulating goods and selling it. NFTs, the hottest thing right now, which I'm like, blown away that this is a thing that exists in the world. Um, but some ideas. So Troy, I'm going to hand it over to you, man. Let's uh, start with what's your favorite investment and, and get to pitching Rob here. 
Yeah. So Ralph, let's first talk about sports cards. So this is something that Mike and I um, both invest in. And the funny thing, Rob, is when you do your traditional investment route, you know, as a private equity individual where you infuse your capital, you look for traditional like PL accounts. You're doing more financial analysis. You're looking for long-term growth and long-term profitability. And that's kind of like the PE kind of private equity type of mindset that you're trying to instill when looking at investments. But when we talk about alternative investments, you don't have a typical PL that you could actually ask from a certain investment. For example, if you're investing in a sports card, you can't get a PL um, you know, from uh, an athlete. They don't have that. What you're doing is this is all emotional based. This is uh, an alternative investment is all based on emotions and based on how well you think this athlete will do in the future. So in a way, you're betting on the athlete's career or even if they're established, you're betting on the value of the athlete going up over time based on how relevant they are in the current marketplace. So it's a very different way from looking at just the pure numbers. It's very emotional driven. And at the end of the day, it all goes back to nostalgia. When you're a little kid going to, you know, the store, sometimes your parents would buy you a pack of cards and that nostalgic factor, you can't place a value on it. It just makes you feel good. And it's really emotionally driven. And that's what's really driving this market because with um, the pandemic, obviously the money machines are going burr. That means inflation is going up. So your dollars are <laughs> worth less. People want to park their money somewhere where the value of that money they're parking is not going to go down over time. For example, if you had $10,000 and you put in a savings account, that's going to go down because the bank's going to pay you 0.01% if you're lucky. And inflation is like 2-3%. So that means over time, your money goes down. Instead, if you take that $10,000, you put an alternative investment that doesn't have a typical PL analysis that's based purely on emotion, but you can see returns of maybe 40-50%, maybe 100 or 200%. That just beats the S&P that averages, you know, eight to 10%. And also, um, when people think of like equities, like bonds and stock, like basically just uh, stocks, equities, a good return to a high net worth individual is five, 8% year over year return. But if you want to do alternative investments, those five to 8% returns, that's considered almost like not successful. You want to average like 10, anywhere to 50% returns when you talk about alternative assets. So it's a different type of mindset. Right. I mean, Troy, it's kind of interesting. I mean, there are kind of what you're describing actually isn't totally new because people have invested in cars and art and other things that are like objects of their own desire that happen to also have a return on investment. So you could argue at some level investing in baseball cards is just another one of those genre where there's like a personal interest, but there's also an appreciation angle to it. Um, it's interesting. Like, I wonder, like, you know, if you're investing $10 million in a piece of art, that sounds as insane to me as spending $10,000 on a baseball card or something like that. On the flip side, people do it all the time. And I always wonder, like, well, there, there's two things that cross my mind is if you're extremely high net worth individual, spending $10 million on a piece of art may not be a reasonable fraction of your portfolio. It could be a small fraction. Right. Uh, so I think everyone understands that, that that's a maybe a fun or a passion project to go after. But there's also, what do you think about this? I mean, there's the other end of the spectrum where maybe you don't have a big asset base and you're sort of, uh, there's sort of benefits to playing hard on the risk profile where things could actually appreciate a lot. Like, you know, I remember like the first really big investment that I had a home run on was uh, this friend of mine, I'll, I'll just call him Jason by his first name. We both 
it had an opportunity to invest in a company called Commerce One, which was a huge bubble win in the in the nineteen late nineteen nineties. And I put fifteen thousand dollars in it, and Jason put fifteen thousand dollars into buying a Jeep Grand Cherokee. And you know, he used to call it his three million dollar Jeep Grand Cherokee. Like twenty years later, because that tiny investment in a company like Commerce One went up a ton versus yep. his Grand Cherokee went down. But I guess where I'm going with this is like my rationale around that is when you don't have much, sometimes right. go all in on the on the stuff that could give you that huge return. Some of these investments you're probably going to talk to me about. I, yeah. I'm thinking back to one of our original investors who who is a billionaire. Um, I heard him drop a line one time around, you don't get super rich diversifying. Yeah. <laughs> and that's I found right. that. Yeah, I found that fascinating to hear from a guy who's worth that much money. I think Warren Buffett sort of has the same philosophy. Like for your average person, you're good with a diversified portfolio. Like you were talking about, Troy, like 5 8 year on year. But yeah. Warren Buffett makes the big money by making a big bet on you know a particular company like Jordan's Furniture or something like that. Yeah, yeah I'm really happy you brought that topic because Mark Cuban and Warren Buffett, they actually think diversification is... Tech, it's quote unquote dumb for people who are just like very knowledgeable about certain investments. It's good for the greater um, society because when you diversify, you know, you don't have to like place massive bets. It kind of just kind of offsets each other. If one area goes down, another is just going to make up for it. But with Warren, you know, Buffett and for example, Mark Cuban, they know exactly what they're investing in. They're super knowledgeable. So it's less of a risk for them, but more of a risk for the average investor who's not as technically inclined and knowledgeable as they are about certain investments. Hey, Troy, I'm going to turn the tables on you. I got one for you. Yeah. That I <laughs> time, okay. So yeah. my, you know, uh, Patrick, he's on our board also. Yep. And he yep. used to work for me and I thought he was a superstar. And we were having lunch one day and I said, I don't know if it was the exact quote, but I said something like this to him. I said, Hey, Patrick, what would I need to pay you for you to give me 10% of your earnings for the rest of your life? Because I mean, when you're young and you don't have much, you know, you get a quarter million dollars, you can make a down payment on a house, you can do this, you can do that. I'm thinking this guy's going to be worth millions of dollars over time. <laughs> Dude, yeah. do you remember what he said? Sell your own potential. Do you remember what he said? He sort of laughed and never fully got back to me with a number, but <laughs> it would have been a good investment, I believe. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Troy, you have any thoughts yeah. on this? That's a hard question. And I kind of pivot off Patrick's answer, you know, because it's you don't want to sell yourself short. At the same time, um, when you give a number, you have to factor in the compound interest and the year over year growth and salary. If, you know, you're expecting a higher, higher salary making every one or two years. So um, if I just had to throw a round number, I would say like potentially 500 million to a billion dollars. <laughs> you know, because <laughs> like, yeah, it's, I mean, it's going long. <laughs> <laughs> you are I'm going, going long, Rob, because yeah. I'm not only thinking about the money that I make salary-wise, but my investments growing and compounding along with the other investments as a total. So um, 10% is quite a lot, especially if you compound that, let's say over the next 40, 50 years of my working life. So I'm factoring not only like my work, uh, manual work hours, but also the expertise that you bring to the table, the knowledge and all that kind of package of one deal. But I'm probably like saying a big number, but... 
you just gotta you gotta believe in yourself, right? Yeah, Why? you do. I mean, geez, that's a bigger number than I'd probably throw down. <laughs> well, I wouldn't throw that out. Holy shit. <laughs> I would take I would take that. <laughs> I so I've actually heard that this is a thing that's starting in the sports world. Like I've I've heard some baseball players will take a basically take a payment up front for some future earning because minor league baseball players make no money. So there are these like firm and my understanding is this is how a lot of golfers get started as well. Like Rob, given Will's connection in the golf world, maybe you've heard of this, but like, you know, it's, it's expensive to tour and you try to get on the PGA tour. And so I've heard of these like conglomerates that get together and they pay for someone to go on tour. And the agreement is that we get X percentage of your future earnings from there. Right. Yeah. I haven't heard of that, but I'm not surprised by that. I remember a while ago, I mean, I think this is more common, maybe 10 or 15 or 20 years ago, but like, for example, I think I remember hearing like doctors, physicians had a much easier time getting home loans because they had like such a reliable future income stream, but they had no down payment capability. So they could right. buy a home for a lot, for a lot lower down payment at much more reasonable terms because their future potential was more certain. Um, right. I doubt that still happens anymore. Maybe that's 20, 25 year old information, but it's kind of interesting sort of along the same lines. Um, but yeah, I mean, a lot of people in life in, in today's world, young people in particular, when you live in an expensive area like Los Angeles or San Francisco, how do you gather up a couple hundred thousand or half a million or a million dollars for a down payment on a home? I don't know. Maybe there's potential to do this sort of thing. And, um, you see a little bit of it creeping in because there are people who will, um, help you exercise your stock options. For example, I've seen some of these services pop up on Instagram yeah. and other news services because a lot of people from their stock options go unexercised when they leave a company because they don't have the cash to go make those investments. So it's sort of similar to that. Yeah. Yep. And Troy, I'd love to hear your, so I've developed my sports card trading strategy over the last 18 months. I'd, I'd love to hear what your, like, what's your strategy? If you don't want to mind giving away your secret a little bit here, I'll tell you mine. Yeah, no secret. So um, something interesting that Rob said was um, you could, there's two routes. There's high risk, high reward, and there's low risk, kind of low risk medium reward there's actually an area in in um in the sports card investing where it's low risk high reward and that's really the ultimate golden nugget right and what i mean by that is if you know the industry really well okay, you're violating the laws of economic professor of economics is turning over <laughs> great, great. let's hear it the low risk so, high reward answer yeah. So for example, when it comes to low risk, high reward, it's very proven invest investments in the sports cards uh, world where you're investing high profile athletes who are going to not go down in relevancy, which means that they're aka considered the GOAT, the greatest of all time in their respective sport. The card itself is super rare, which means it doesn't get sold as often. It's scarce, which means there's only a limited number of them in production. And fourth is to get your hands on them you have to infuse a lot of capital in order to get that. So I'm just curious, Mike and Rob, I'm going to throw up some numbers out to you. These are the sports card sales that have happened in the history of the sports cards. And they've been recent and they've been breaking records. Number one, um, Mickey Mantle's 1952 Tops card. It sold for $2.8 million. Second, Ho Honus Wagner, his T206 PSA 5. So when I say PSA 5, there's PSA goes from a 1 to 10 scale. 10 means the card is absolutely gem mint. There's not, there's really minor flaws with it. PSA one means the card is not in the best condition. So when I use a one to 10 scale, this is what it means. Uh, so Honus Wagner, that card sold for 3.1 million, that T206. T206 is from 
<laughs> the 1909-1911 back in the days when they created cars off cigarettes packets. I think that one came out of a cigarette pack, right? And the rest of them were putting kids' bike spokes and they just got flipped around all that and now they're worth three million bucks. Yeah. Yep, exactly. And no one knew it was going to be valuable. So kind of like Mike said, people were using it on their bikes, throwing it away, just putting their pockets, scratching it up. Um, the third card, Mike Trout, a one of one, which means only one card got produced. A super factor, which means it's super shiny, very, very nice. People love shiny objects, right? Um, that sold for $3.9 million. Number and the fourth one, Luka Doncic, up and coming star, third year in the NBA. He's Slovenian. It's a one of one logo man, which, which means it's the it's the NBA logo cut from the jersey, paste onto the card, autographed. It sold for $4.6 million. And the biggest of all, the holy grail, the Mickey Mantle card, 1952, tops chrome. I mean, sorry, tops, $5.2 million. So curious, like, what you think, Rob and Mike, about these, like, numbers and these record-setting prices for literally a piece of cardboard that has no economic value to it. Just curious. What both I'm assuming think. people that are spending $4 million on a baseball card are not worth $4 million less. They're worth $40 million or more, probably, or some crazy numbers, right? Not, not only that, there are actually now funds that have been pulled together to buy high-end sports cards. Like there's, yeah. a, there's a VC fund in San Francisco that I think bought, was it one of the more recent Jordan cards that was yeah. put on put up for auction? Yeah, it was the Jordan rookie card, the one that recently sold for four. It's recently sold for 700000 and then it went back to 400000 But, I mean, it's it's a very... I mean, the fund example is a little scary because you're only worth, an asset's only worth what the next person's willing to pay for it. And so it's a little Correct. bit game if you get to the top and you're the biggest fund buying these cards and no one's willing to buy a particular card you're probably out of luck eventually but in the short term i mean maybe it's maybe it's a reasonable bet um i had uh, i'm interested if you guys agree with this related to this card thing so a friend of mine is a, a rare car aficionado like he he isn't a rich guy but he was a mechanic over his life and he's really into vintage cars and i was asking one day like if i was going to buy a car you know, what should I buy? And he's like, you should buy the car you were in love with when you were a kid. Because if you were in love with a kid, other people are in love with a kid. And when they get rich and that car becomes more rare, it will become more valuable. And I mean, is there some other phenomenon like that in the card thing that makes sense? That's, yeah. So like, I don't know, Troy, my, my take is it as it's, it's a cyclical thing. It's who, who did you care about when you were a kid? So yeah, I like collecting some of the nineties Dodgers players or like, so that's, it's special for me. And I think that's how, and it's so funny you should say that when we got to stay at your place in the preserve, thank you for letting us do that. When they had the car show, right? And we're at the car show and there are all these super rich people. I don't even know how much money they're worth. And there's like Ferraris and Lamborghinis and really nice stuff everywhere. And then there's a Datsun and everybody stops at the Datsun. And, it's, and they're like, oh, I had that car when I was in high school. That's so great. Bob. Meanwhile, they're like literally million dollar cars around there and everyone's stopping looking at the dots and it was the the funniest thing it was the funniest thing so yeah there's that's like such spot-on advice yeah it's sort yeah. of that personal connection i think people have that with art as well like you know if, if you have a particular artist or a particular i don't know subject area of art that you're interested in people will pay insane numbers for that stuff but um cars are something that i think like baseball cards people have a, a great affinity towards um you know, I, I don't probably there's also examples of music. Didn't somebody buy the whole library of the Beatles or something like that? It's like if you're really into an artist, you you could probably own or copyright the copyright of the music just because you're in love with it. Yeah, you could buy it all. Mm -hmm. 
Troy, yeah. how do you feel about Luca being that expensive? Like, I, I don't view him as being around <laughs> long enough to like feel confident he's the goat. So, for those listening, Troy is currently holding his Luca PSA graded, ooh, ten PSA gem 10. mid card right there. Yeah, Panini Prism. Yep. All right, what'd you drop on that one? So, funny thing, I actually was with John eating barbecue down in San Diego when I bought this, and I was saying, John, I lost a previous bid for eighty five dollars, and John's like, Troy, how bad do you want? I'm like, I want it really bad. He's like, Troy, drop an extra $5. I'm like, John, I'm kind of kind of hesitant about dropping an extra five. My max is 85 on Luca. So John convinced me. I dropped $90 on this that night. The next morning go. I woke up, it jumped to 120 This card I bought for 90 bucks, it's currently valued right now at $1.2,000. And the high for this card was 2.2K. So it dropped from 2.2K to 1.2, but I held on to it because one, very similar to like, Mike, what you mentioned and Rob, what your friends were mentioning, I really enjoy watching Luca as a basketball star. So to me, even though I dropped a thousand dollars, I didn't sell it. So I technically didn't realize any gains or loss. It's just still in my possession. And I got in at such a low cost basis at $90 that it doesn't matter if I lost a thousand because I'm still going to be up. And the great thing is this has appreciated multiple times over. So even if it went down to 1.2 K, I'm only in it for 90, 90 bucks. So it's a win-win and overall, me carrying this card makes me more joyful when I watch the games that Luca plays because now it gives me a more reason to root for him because not only do I like it from a band perspective, but I have financial interest in his success as a, as a uh, athlete. So very interesting, but this is where um, kind of like it's, it was risky at the moment, but what made me buy it because I believe in Luca's long-term potential. And that's before I even own any card of Luca. So the fact that, the worst thing I could have had was losing $90. The best thing that could have happened was I was thinking it would appreciate by two. It would go from 90 to 180. Obviously, it exceeded my expectations and I came on the winning side of it. And what Mike mentioned was if you buy a card that you really enjoy, even if it goes down, it's going to have less of an emotional hit for you because you truly enjoy that that card. Or like your friend, Rob, who bought that really nice car that he really liked and it created such a nice nostalgic factor. It's less of an emotional hit. And with investing, you really have to take emotion out of it because that's where bad decisions go wrong when investing. So when it comes to sports cards, you're always going to have the emotional factor to serve as your foundational um, kind of base. And you could use that base to kind of limit any downside potential for you to sell too early because you bought purely for flipping. But if you bought for you know future investment, but also enjoy the card, you have both benefits going for you instead of just one benefit that you really can't control because you only could control is whether you like it, but you can't control the market. <laughs> no, it makes sense. You raised one interesting point in there, many interesting points actually, but one I've been thinking about recently is like the yeah. entry price to an investment and you put a bid order in or something like that on a stock or, you know, venture capitalist Mike are continually, we were talking about earlier, trying to push values down so you can, you know, but at the end of the day, yep. Whether you paid 85 or 95 or 120 or even $500 probably doesn't matter if you believe it's going to go where it's going to go. Um, and, and, you know, there's a lot. Well, when I was in venture capital, Patrick and I used to go back and look at investments that we passed on for valuation. He just sent me one recently. A company's worth billions and billions of dollars. And we didn't want to pay, I think, a pre money of $20 million because we thought it was too high at the time. So, yeah, value is sort of, you know, Price is only expensive relative to the long-term value of something, right? And it'd be interesting right. to understand human psychology a little bit more. Like, 
do people tend to do people who tend to like be more free within the price ultimately do better because they buy the assets they're going to appreciate the most or those that are more conservative trying to get the best deal and they tend to do better? I don't know the answer to that. Do you guys? My guess is in like high reward situations like venture capital world or sports car trading. Yeah. The people who aren't worried about paying an extra 20% for something to get that deal versus not get that deal at all in the long run are probably doing better. My piece of advice, I'm a big Dodger fan. So I only buy Dodger cards and I, I buy rookies, which means I know more than the average baseball fan about these players. And I also, the timing of it. So Troy, you know, they have their releases every quarter yep. or three times a yep. year. They're the releases. So I'm on eBay buying last year's releases for the rookie cards. Cause they're a little depressed on price right now. Cause they're not as cool. Cause they're not totally. And then I buy those at whatever, you know, you only buy on auctions, never, never buy it now because you get ripped off. So only, only bid on things and it's fun doing that. And then I'll buy a card. I'll get it graded. I'll throw it on my store for a buy it now price. That's way higher. And then I'll just sit there and wait until someone pays for it. And so like I had that, I've made that exact play. You go for a high quality player where there's a low population of cards. Dustin May on the Dodgers, right? 18 months ago, I bought his orange, which is out of 25 for $500. The other morning I wake up and they're like, PayPal's like, boom, you have received $1,600. And I was like, what happened? And it was because my I put it on my store for 1500, got my PayPal that morning, shipped off the card. And there we go. I made a quick thousand bucks just from like having that fun exercise with one of my favorite Dodger pitchers now. That was it. Yeah. And you know why? He showcased a new slider during spring training. And people were like, whoa, that looks real good. And bought it, bought it, but two of my cards sold on that one. It's so, yeah, they're like different, different strategies. Sounds like you're for like names that aren't going anywhere. Like Mike Trout, no one's going to forget about Mike Trout. This guy, Dustin May, there's a very high probability he gets forgotten about in the like long-term history of baseball. But I, I took my kind of shorter flip on it and then have my own players to collect as well. So Mike, how, so one thing I always wonder about these, these investments like cards, um, setting aside the passion element, which you guys definitely have, and that makes it exciting, even if you're not making a ton, but what percentage of your what income of your net worth would you actually feel comfortable having allocated to that asset class? Like, you know, it, it's one thing to talk about a thousand dollars. I'm not going to ask you on, on the podcast, what your net worth is, but like, you know, yeah. Are you that convinced that it's a great thing to do financially that you'd seriously consider putting all of your uh, assets at risk? I, I guess if I were to go higher quality with it, because for me personally, I view part of it is the the fun of it. Also, it's yeah. and it's right. But it's setting, entre- setting setting all of that aside. So I would say today, if I was sitting on a ton of money, you know, maybe I'd take two percent. Yeah, and buy buy a Mike Trout card. Like I'd go big with it. It would be a Jordan Trout, somebody who's not going anywhere and is going to be like hall of fame for a LeBron. You know, I, I'd go with like that level. of. But I mean, your whole port, I mean like not just one card, but would you like, let's say, let's say you were 65 years old and retired and you had a nest egg. Would you, because you love doing this so much, would you take a hundred percent of your net worth and just trade baseball cards? Or do you think that Oh, just because I love it, trading it? Yeah, yeah. At that point, I I want to do I want to do what I enjoy. So it'd be a way higher percentage, which is like, yeah, kind of where I'm shaking out right now. Because I view it there's a there's a hold, there, there's either the buy and hold, right, which is like the big names, or there's the flipping game, which I kind of okay. do a little bit of both. And the the flipping game is just fun because it's like entrepreneurship, and it uh, makes me feel like I'm running a simple little business again. It's a fun little store I have on the side where I'm running my own business. And by the way. Uh, 
five-star ratings, 100% positive reviews on my eBay store. Um, and then the investment <laughs> side of it, I buy like the good Dodgers. So my prize possession is a Clayton Kershaw signed rookie card blue, which is the one I collect. And that's like not going anywhere that represents a small percentage of my you know net worth, but like I will die with that card in my house somewhere. And then I hope we don't have a bad situation where somebody comes and ransacks your house for that card tonight. <laughs> <laughs> I hope, I hope not. Yeah. No address is revealed on this one, but ooh, that's a prize possession of mine. That's great. And that card's yeah. tripled in value since I bought it. Yep. And Rob, it's important where Mike also mentioned blue, the color of the border of the card actually matters because basically the color of the border determines how much of that specific color they make. And the fact that it's a blue color that matches the Dodgers color. So that goes for a higher premium rather than if it's an orange or a red, even if there's a lower population. The fact that the colors match the jersey creates more of a um, collectible appeal. So Mike, what he's saying is interesting because there's the long-term mindset of buying a high value card and then like waiting 10, 20 years for it to even jump. But if you want to go on the other spectrum where you do a short-term flip, anything that you buy with the intention of selling in less than 12 months, you go for low numbered cards that have a collector's appeal. So the colors match. And if it's an autograph, it's authenticated, it's low pop. So it's like, even if you have the mentality of high risk, high reward, you could limit your, your downside, um, like loss potential by knowing what factors to focus on to kind of have achieved the best outcome if possible in a market that you can't control because we can't control if Kershaw is going to break his ankle, tears ACL. We can't control that. So there's certain factors you can control. Don't, don't put that out there, man. No, no. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> that won't happen, but yeah, it's, it's interesting. So yeah. Troy, Mike, you're making a good point. There's obviously money made in baseball cars, but one thing I've learned over the years, for me at least, is that yeah. it's hard for me to participate in investments that I know nothing about or don't understand. I don't know anything about baseball cards. I barely watch baseball or football or anything like that, but... Um, you know, for things like this, when I run into some younger people who seem to be like a whiz kid, like one of my friends, Matthew Woe is a YouTube phenom on the stock trading side, like somebody like that, they may not pursue a strategy that I understand or believe in necessarily, but if they're being successful. I wouldn't mind giving someone like that some money to play with just to let them have fun and to see how it works, you know, and, and similarly on the baseball card thing, I would never directly invest in baseball cards. But I wouldn't hold it against somebody else who's figured out the game and wants to do it. And I might even give them a little bit of money for the fun, fun of it. But for me, where it gets into like a sizable fraction of my net worth, however you want to measure that, then it's got to be something that I actually understand. Like Flowcast, for example, Mike, I put my own money into the company alongside you guys. Like I do that because I'm, I'm involved. I understand it. I, I believe in the market. I've seen the customers, whites of their eyes, you know, this sort of thing. It's just a game I understand. Yeah. No, I, I completely, I could not agree more. The, the notion of like investing in beanie babies for me or something like that. There's like no way I'd be doing that on eBay right now. I don't, I don't know that game, but yeah, I'm a baseball nerd. Troy's a basketball nerd, knows so much about, about this stuff. That makes perfect <laughs> yeah. sense. Speaking it's of basketball. Trading side, I was talking to my son the other day because he's in Robin Hood stuff and we were walking oh. to go get coffee in Palo Alto. And we were talking, I was telling him about the phenomenon of day trading and how you're supposed to clear out your, your positions every day and, that, I don't. I'm sure that still goes on, but it was a huge phenomenon, like in the bubble period of the like late late '90s, 2000 era. And I knew guys who made a lot of money doing it, but ultimately they they just gassed out. Like none of them kept doing it as a career. I'm sure right. some of them dabble in it, but it, it, it some of these things are just 
it's a lot of work. It's a lot of stress. It's, you know, there's a lot of ups and downs and high beta over an extended period of time. And, it, you know, it, it, it tends to go its course. I think my view is that cyclicality over time plays a, plays a role. Yeah. And, and cards are, cards are dangerous because they are require, you know, disposable income for people to want to be really flipping and accumulating them. And that is a market, the tulip market, right? What's that? The Dutch tulip market <laughs> that fell apart back in the day. Like that's very yeah. applicable to the sports card market. It's a disposable income thing. Yeah, I won't name names, but I know a wealthy guy who made a point of buying a lot of ultra high luxury vacation homes from other billionaires, basically. And when the, those billionaires would go distressed and have to sell a, a $50 million estate, you would buy them for 10 or 15 or 20 million <laughs> for a few years and sell them at the higher price. So when you have a lot of money, you can do that kind of stuff. You know, and it's probably no different than buying a distressed baseball card from your friend who needs to make a mortgage payment or something like that. Yeah, there was some of that going on during the during the pandemic as well. Um, Troy sneakers is a game I do not know <laughs> at all. Yeah, Let's get, I, I lost sleep. I still lose sleep over Troy keeping sneakers in his closet. <laughs> I know. Get get ready for this, everyone. I'm <laughs> Troy. Tell us about your sneaker game. Yeah, for sure. And before I answer that, um, you both of you hit on a really good point. Uh, Mike invests in baseball cards because he loves baseball. Rob, you invest in companies because you don't, you don't only love the thrill of you know making a profit, but you really genuinely love being a part of the operations and really seeing how things work, interacting with the clients, and really having a a very like um, influential outcome in whatever you invest because you have that ability. So it's like what I'm trying to say is no matter what you invest in, if you invest in something you love, there's always ability to make money. Whether you're baking cookies, whether you're investing in purses, high-end cars, it could be anything. You could yeah. literally make a hobby out of it and most importantly make money because it'll fund you for a economic like long-term. Um, that said, with sneakers, I actually love sneakers because it goes along with basketball culture since I love basketball. All the athletes are sponsored by different brands who then you know sign endorsement contracts with these players and they show them on social media and it creates like a culture. And what's interesting is I really didn't know that sneakers was an investable asset until I kind of dabbled in the market, started researching more. And for example, um, the most popular sneaker is usually correlated to the most popular athlete. And what I mean by that is we all heard of Michael Jordan, even if he, he uh, even if you grew up like you're Gen X or Gen Z growing up and you never see Michael Jordan play, you know Michael Jordan because he holds such a big household name for the influence he had during his playing days and even after. And what I'm holding up is a typical Nike box to probably you, Rob, and you, Mike, you're probably like, okay, this looks like any generic you know, Nike box that I go in any sneaker store and see. But this box is special because it represents the silhouette of the Jordan 1. And that's the first sneaker that Jordan wore in 1985 when he signed with Nike. The funny thing is <laughs> Jordan wanted to sign with Adidas, but he ultimately chose Nike because Nike would give him his own shoe where Adidas would kind of put him in the traditional branding of Adidas without giving his own shoe silhouette. So Nike got Jordan in 1985 and this is what the silhouette looks like right here. So it looks like a traditional Jordan shoe, you know, it's just Nike logo. The only Jordan brand you see is, um, says right here. It has like the Nike Air Jordan wings logo. And, and this is those, funny because for those listening, yeah. Troy just pulled a vacuum sealed shoes out of a <laughs> Nike box and is currently walking us through the logos here. Man, you are keeping those safe. Okay, sorry. 
Go ahead. Yeah, and, and good question. I'm keeping a bag because sometimes these shoes over time they deteriorate because um, you know sometimes the leather becomes shiny just because there's oxidation with the air. So keeping it in a in tight and sealed case kind of prevents further deterioration and helps keep its value because at the end of the day, it's like you want to keep it in the most pristine collection uh, conditions. So if you decide to give it to another new owner by selling it, they're going to have the greatest condition possible. But um, so the great thing about this is these shoes typically retail for 160 or 170 and after tax, maybe like $180. California sales tax is 9.5%. So just add 10% on top. So let's say $180 you drop on the shoe. Um, instantly, the silhouette is the most recognizable silhouette in the whole basketball brand. And if you get this for retail for 180, most likely there's a secondary market that's going to instantly sell the shoe at least for $220, upwards of $300, depending on the colorway and how limited they are. So the fact that you could drop 180 and instantly flip it on the aftermarket and make 40, 60, $100 profit, it's what gets people to really, um, kind of get attracted to this market. And it's funny because this is like crazy. This is not an, it's not an economic asset. It doesn't give you dividends. It's not something that has a capitalization on it. The only thing is it's just culture and you just wear this and it's not even a sports card, you know, like how old are those sneakers? Are those like 1980 something sneakers? (laughs) No, this is only, um, (laughs) this is only about a year old. So I keep a spreadsheet and it it tells me like how long I've uh, kept the shoe, but if you have like a the shoe from 1985 that's worn by Michael Jordan autograph, they could easily go for a million dollars. And one actually sold on eBay for a million dollars. The exact 1985 model that Jordan signed. Troy, maybe you could be like the Pied Piper of sneaker investors by getting the government to wave off on sales tax when you buy something like that. Because you have to pay sales tax when you buy a share of IBM stock and you're basically buying a, an investable asset right there. Yeah, that'll be that'll be really interesting. And the funny thing that you mentioned that um, when it comes to sneakers and sports cards... These are um, non-registered assets, which means you don't have to provide your social security. For example, if you went to Robinhood or Fidelity and you bought an index fund, a stock, a bond, you have to provide your social because those are registered assets. These are non-registered assets. And when people think about non-registered assets, they think automatically it's not a legit investment because it hasn't been proven itself over time. This is a relatively new market. It's only been around for about 30 years. And the fact that people are making like no joke, Rob and Mike, people are making millions off of this as a full-time job, opening stores and expanding. It is a multi-billion dollar market, the sneaker industry. And it's insane because most people don't know about it. Why can you flip something for 20% above what you just paid for it within one day in this market? Yep. Good question. So um, the analogy I use is if you're hungry and there's only 10 in-out burgers, but you had you were stuck in a room and let's say it's an apocalypse and there's only 20 people, only 10 out of those 20 people could actually eat the burger and grab it. So same thing with sneakers. There's only a limited quantity and not everyone could buy it, but everyone wants it. So the supply demand, it's, it's total off balance. There's low supply and high demand. And that's what really drives the resale. Because you can't- sneaker companies just basically have an auction system for supplying the market with sneakers. Yeah, that's awesome that you asked that because uh, if you print to demand, Rob, if you create to demand the shoe, it's going to lose the wow factor and people aren't going to be hyped. And you need the hype culture. Let's say you're the you're VP of marketing for, let's say you're a CMO for Nike. You actually enjoy, they don't officially say this, but they enjoy having resale and hype and making things of limited quality and people going crazy over them because it creates general, it's creates genuine word of mouth marketing on your right. behalf. 
it's a marketing technique. But it's interesting, like ticket scalpers, like my college roommate's brother was a professional ticket scalper. It's kind of the same thing. You buy a ticket to Thomas Rhett concert and then you sell it at a higher price later. But like Ticketmaster and the concert musicians got, they figured this out to a degree and mostly just jack the prices of these tickets. They get more out of it. Yeah. So for them, I guess they determined, hey, we already got enough notoriety. We'll just, uh, we'll, they're still, t- they're still a scalping business, but they're trying to reap more of the profit in front. Yeah. It's and like classic supply. And I mean, classic supply and demand, but that's a fascinating like brand angle for Nike. And yeah, have, yeah. having the hype machine driven by the public makes, they're smarter than I am with marketing. So it probably makes sense. Yeah, probably does. <laughs> Yeah, the funny thing is they actually listened to Rob's advice to print more and they did this in the um, like three to two years ago where they printed not to demand, but printed way more and these sat on shelves. So if you're the CMO of, of Nike and you see your product sitting on shelves, especially a specific um, project like this where you don't want this to sit on shelves, you want to sell it instantly. That's a big W for your company because you not only made profit off that, you know, let's say you, you, you create 100,000 shoes. You made profit off the hundred thousand dollar shoes, but you could have made profit off if you made a million because it'll still sell out. You're just going to lose that word of mouth intangible factor that's right. going to create value in the long run, and yeah, that's kind of where my point was slightly different. Not that they should produce more shoes, but they should produce ten pairs of shoes and have a bid ask system on their website, so someone pays them a million dollars for the shoes. Hey, Troy, wasn't StockX doing something like that where it was sort of like a Dutch auction style with new shoes that were getting released? Yeah, they actually did it with baseball cards, Mike. So they had a collaboration with Tops. Oh, it was the Gary Vaynerchuk cards, right? <laughs> yeah, it's Gary Vaynerchuk. And then there was another one where they had an exclusive partnership with Tops. So what they did, Rob and Mike, it's actually interesting. Instead of like putting, instead of knowing what the value is and having it sell out because people were, like if you set a retail price of 200 and you have a million people who are willing to pay 200, it's going to sell instantly. So what they did was like a blind duct auction. And what that means is, you're going to put in your price and what they're going to do is they're going to take the top like 20% of the people who submit the highest price, but you only pay what that lowest 20th, um, like the lowest prices on the 20th list. So it could be a million dollars or it could be 20,000. It just depends on what that, what that price is on the 20th highest, basically the 20th highest pricing that's on that list. Really right. interesting. That go down to school auctions for fundraising and people try to stiff their friends with like a really expensive vacation home. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they call it in an IPO for sports cards, initial public offering. And that's like their version of it. Cause um, yeah, Josh Luber, who, you know, used to be the CEO of StockX, it was his concept. He doesn't want the retail companies to price their products. He wants the market to price the product. So it, it's a win-win because the, the retail companies could make, profit off it and they don't have to set their own price, but they could potentially make more based on the demand of the market. So it's very interesting concept. Yeah. And StockX, for those not aware, there it's like a stock exchange website for alternative investments, basically. I, I believe sneakers are a big, big part of the business, right? Correct. Yeah. And yeah. it literally, it's like if you log into your 401k account, you can see a graph of how your investments grow over time. You get the exact same graph uh, for your alternative assets, whether it's sneakers, cards, um, like skateboards. Ooh. Ooh, yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure Troy's charts are looking pretty good in there. <laughs> and with how Flowcast is doing, pretty soon we could put up lunch with Mike Whitmire on one of those. Ooh, <laughs> yeah, or maybe uh, one of my my podcasts as an NFT. So perhaps we can we can dig into that <laughs> that world. Here's here's a new one that's like popping on the scene. I know a little bit about it, but not a ton. So Troy, can you educate us on NFTs? 
Yeah, NFT stands for non-fungible token. And let me break it down. Non-fungible means there's it, there's only one of its kind. It's unique and it's scarce. It's only one of one. That's what non-fungible means. It also means that if you buy an NFT, like an artwork, you can't trade it in for another NFT. That's the whole meaning of the non-fungible. For example, a fungible um, asset would be Bitcoin because you could trade one Bitcoin for another Bitcoin. They're exactly identical. But when you talk about a non-fungible asset, that means you can't have a trade that's one for one because each item is uniquely different. And when we talk about token, what we're talking about is a digital contract. It's uh, it's pretty much saying that um, when we talk about token, it's verified on something called a blockchain, which is just kind of a, think of a fancy way of saying it's a general ledger that keeps track of all the transactions that happen. So it's easy, verifiable, and you can see Hey, if Rob, you sold an NFT to Mike, I could go on your public ledger and see that you sold the transaction to Mike, the date and the time. I could see if Mike sold it to someone else. So it creates a traceable ledger. And that's kind of what the meaning of non-fungible token means. It's super rare. It's one out of one. It's scarce. And it's traded on a public ledger that everyone could have access to. The greatest part is decentralized. So that means you have to deal with lawyers. You don't have to deal with banks. You have full control over the purchase of that asset as they call it non-fungible token <laughs> can you provide an example yeah for example let's say um let's say for example mike you you're gonna buy you're gonna buy an nft from from rob right so rob um when it comes to rob creating nft he's gonna create for example 10 nfts of his artworks that he made each artwork is different right or it could be the same artwork but with a special variation maybe in the way he it or the colors that he used. So let's say he has 10 NFT artworks. What he's going to do is he's going to register that NFT through something called a smart contract. And okay. what that contract shows is how much you're going to set the price at. And what the contract is really there to represent is it's just going to represent a transfer of ownership with terms and conditions. For example, he's going to sell at this price. It's going to be non-negotiable. And right when that transaction happens, ownership transfers to you, Mike, because you bought it off of uh, Rob. For you, you know, apply in the basement, he owns it basically. Correct. Yeah. Like, so the funny thing, Rob, is you have um, ownership to the copyright of the of the um, of the item and the intellectual property, but Mike has the ownership to tr- to um, represent the artwork he bought from you on his um, social media accounts. He could share it with people because he has ownership over distribution, but he doesn't have ownership over the IP rights and copyright because you still have ownership to that. And the greatest part about this, uh, Rob, is this is actually like groundbreaking because it brings together different worlds. It brings together scarcity, flipping, entrepreneurship, e-commerce, um, art. It brings so many different factors of life into the space. And the funny thing is it's not tangible. You can't touch it. You can't print it. You could print it out, but you know, it's, it's not something you could like physically touch like an actual artwork. So is it only digital art or does this extend into like are videos things is are songs things that you can purchase this way yeah it's, it's songs videos contracts insurance policies it could hit a wide variety of different things i know that sounds insane when we talk about insurance policies and contracts it's because you don't have to have any third-party middlemen for example you know you have to go to a bank or a lawyer to make sure that whatever uh, contract you agree to that anything is going to be changed afterwards because when you set their contract it's kind of set in stone and it's verified on that public ledger. So that's why 
different types of industries are getting to it because it's not only for collectibles, it's just for like a wide variety of things where you want transparency and you want anyone to have the ability to access the asset without having to go your traditional routes of, you know, things that are maybe not accessible to some families, like uh, a banker, an investment maker, a lawyer, you know, a doctor. It's, right. it's very like um, flexible and just, yeah, it's, it's very, it's on a general basis and it's, it's just really groundbreaking technology and I don't know if you know this, Mike and Rob, there's actually, um, if you create your smart contract, what's really cool is that, let's say you're an artist, Rob, and you sell your artwork to Mike, and Mike sells his artwork to me. Once Mike sells the artwork to me, what's great is that you could potentially get a 10 to 20% royalty off the sale that Mike sells it to me, because you could actually build in to the smart contract that you're gonna get revenues on any future sales. So for example, Rob, let's say, you know, you turn 100 years old, or let's say 200, 200 years old, and you pass away. Your family could receive royalties in perpetuity for the rest of their life if you, you know, give ownership to your kid. So That's it's awesome. Future earnings or whatever for perpetuity, sort of like could be for a song or anything, right? Yep. Exactly. And that's like super powerful because nothing like that exists now. Like right now, if you sell an artwork, you only make a sale on the initial sale as an artist. Other than, other than that, like any future sales that happen off your artwork, you're not going to get any economic benefit. But with NFTs, it really changes that space and makes things way more interesting. I, I feel like it's, it's more fair. You know, if, if you're the original creator, you should have the ability to profit off that for However, many times it changes hands in the future. If it goes down in value, I seem you don't have to pay out for that. <laughs> Good question. I have, oh, I, oh, that I, is I, a <laughs> no-risk, high-reward proposition is <laughs> NFT creators. Okay. But it's yeah. actually really Content cool creators. what you're describing. I like it because it, it, uh, yeah. it's one way to differentiate the buyers, too. I might be willing to give you cash. Someone else is willing to give you an NFT with a royalty. That NFT with a royalty would be a, a more attractive deal, potentially. And exactly. And no cost on my back. Like... I've been doing this um, venture production studio work where we've been buying some small software companies and we've been doing some of those deals where there's a royalty payout over time to the person that we're buying the asset from. So we'll buy the company and give them 10% of profits for two years or something like that. It's sort of like that to sweeten the deal, not as much cash out of pocket, a little bit less risk for us, but the founder feels like they get paid over time. Yeah, exactly. So like, what, what are some sales that have occurred? Because it's someone right. new. I'm, I'm glad sure you. Like somebody, <laughs> I knew Troy would be ready. Yeah. I'm glad you asked that. So we're going to go over two types of sales. We're going to go over artwork that's intangible. And we're going to go over a video for basketball because that's, you know, I love that. So I'm going to throw up some numbers. I'm, I just want to see your reaction, Rob and Mike. So the first thing, um, it's an artwork. It's called Crossroads. There is an artist and he goes by the name of Mike Winkleman. He's more famously known as Beeple. And you probably heard that from all these news sources the past month. So Beepo, aka Mike Winkleman. So he sold an artwork, it's called Crossroads. Um, it, it has a, a photo of our past president um, on the floor without clothes with a lot of uh, profan- profanity words on it. So it's, it's very unique and really interesting. That sold for $6.6 million, that artwork. Um, I wanna show you a second thing. It's called CryptoPunk. CryptoPunk is kind of one of the first um, NFTs that ever got created. And it's a collection of 10,000 unique characters, and they're all pixelated. So it's the funny thing is it was given for free in the beginning. And now those each of those 10,000 like, unique characters, they're selling consistently for over $40,000 each. 
but they were first given out as a free asset to individuals. So the CryptoPunk number 7804 sold for $7.5 million. And let me tell you this one. This is the, the best one. So this is same artist. It's called Beepo. So aka Mike Winkleman. He sold his first 5,000 days of artworks he created. So it's 5,000 artworks he created every single day, collapsed into a collage. And it was sold by a major auction house, the Christie Auction House. Everyone knows it. It's like legit. It's it's like one of the most high class auction houses. And his artwork sold for $69.3 million. <laughs> Mike's face. Holy. So I'm curious what both of you think man, about I'm these, in the uh, wrong sales. game. Oh my gosh. I need to start. I need to learn Photoshop. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> It's interesting. This, yeah. Those are staggering numbers, first of all. <laughs> to me, it comes down back to the original point, which is do you love it and do you have the money to make it a non a trivial amount of your net worth? Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, who buys a $2 million watch? You know, I, it, somebody who's probably worth a lot more than $2 million. Yeah. So, so now, Troy, the appeal of those is like we're not allowed to see those pictures now, right? Only the person who has the the code or whatever is able to see the image? Oh, so this is where it gets even more fun because you're like, this makes no logical sense. You could actually take, the photos are still publicly available. You could actually take the same photo with your phone on your computer and be like, hey, I own this. The only thing that you and Rob won't own if you actually take a photo of the same artwork with your phone is that you don't earn, you don't own the COA. There's certificate of authenticity saying that you own this artwork. And it's not only that, it's the fact that you have the bragging rights to say you're the first owner of that artwork. That's what people love this new asset for because it's sort of like the Honus Wagner card. I can take a picture of it and that doesn't make me like special versus owning the original card. Correct. And you're only owning their certificate of authenticity on the blockchain that says that it validates a transaction saying that you're the actual owner and it went from the original creator to you. And that's where the real value is. And most importantly, you know, if we take photos of it with our phone, like all three of us, we can't say we own a $70 million asset in our phone because um, we don't own like the actual rights to it, even though we have a replica. And the important factor is that the certificate says that it's authentic, that transaction that went from the creator to you. Um, it's really hard to... Um, replicate and create fakes of NFTs. It's just, it's really tough because of the technology that underlines it. So Troy, who buys the $700,000 pixelized <laughs> image of a grasshopper or whatever it is? Like who got <laughs> that person on the other side buying that? Yeah, these are, these are definitely, you know, high net worth individuals who want to park their money. I can't say if that 70 million is immaterial to that um, individual who bought it because I'm sure there's a material effect but it might be only one or 2% net worth of that individual or potentially even up to 10%, but they believe in the technology and they're looking at it in terms of a 10, 20 year timeframe where we're just trying to understand what this technology means. So it's, it's a very interesting question you pose, Rob. We all asked that, like, you know, who's crazy enough to spend even a hundred dollars on an art piece that you can't touch, especially 70 million. You know, you could buy, you could buy a couple houses with that. <laughs> couple yeah yeah <laughs> one or two <laughs> yeah <laughs> that is wild so so we don't know how the investment side of that's going to play out but the nft creators are doing are doing pretty well it sounds like 
yeah, they're doing really well. And this um, this person that sold it, you know, Mike Mike Winkleman, aka Beeple, he actually consults for Nike and all the major brands on uh, creating artwork. So he creates like backstage artworks for like Ariana Grande, and he's really well known. So the fact that he brought in this much hype, his resume already reflected his high level of skill sets that are required to produce artwork that people want to have. And it's it's just really, and he's a really interesting dude. He's not like he's really comedic and very down to earth. So. Um, yeah, it's just a very interesting story. I mean, 70 million, honestly, that's, that's a lot of money. That's, that's huge. I mean, if we talk about the most expensive car that ever sold was double check $5 million, which is Mickey Mantle. And that's a 1952 car tops card that actually took 70 years to appreciate. But when we're talking about NFTs less than, you know, five years old and it sold for 70 million, it's hard to make that connection between like something that's established like a baseball card that took 70 years to appreciate versus an intangible artwork that only took about five years to appreciate. It's like the, it's the best thing I've learned. I've learned a lot on this so far, but one of the things I've learned so far that's really staggering is that Troy thinks a $5 million baseball card is not a lot. He thinks a $70 million <laughs> digital image is a lot. And he thinks he's worth $500 million. <laughs> <laughs> Troy's got big expectations here. <laughs> yeah. So my, uh, Rob, what's your, what's your take? Do any of these three areas seem interesting to you? Or are you going to keep your money in the, in the housing and, and stock market? Well, I, you know, for me, where I like to invest is, as you know, private companies like Flowcast. And that's, that's where I make my bread and butter. And I, as well as I've always had this philosophy, like keep what you've already earned. So I keep those in like more normal investments. But I think what's exciting about this is passion, you know, and when you have passion for something, ability to be involved with something you're really excited about. And, you know, I, I, I can see potentially getting passionate about something like that. I haven't found that today. But if I did, I wouldn't hesitate to wade into that to a degree. But for me to like say, oh, yeah, I'm excited to go give Troy $100,000 to invest in sneakers for me, probably not. But like if it's something that drives you and is passionate for you, like I think that's exciting. And I think that's cool that all kinds of people of all ages are finding those things that they're excited about. Yeah. That's, that's a stellar point. Like the whole baseball card thing. Yeah. It's, I, I really don't do it for the money. It's so much fun. It's, it's, I love the sport. I love obviously entrepreneurship. This is like Flowcast is getting complicated, right? We're scaling. It's different. This is sort of like a, just a, a simpler day. I get to buy something for one price, sell it for a higher price <laughs> and people rate the transaction with me. And it's just so it's nice. It's a hobby for sure. So it's a, it's a, it's a passion play. I agree with you. It's cool yeah. to see too, my son who's 20, like he suddenly got interested in the Robin and stuff and it ignited his passion about companies that he didn't have before. So it could kind of come from new school to old school or old school to new school. And you know, everybody finds their sweet spot, the stuff they're excited about. Well, fractional yeah. shares on Robinhood is huge. You know, I, th I think it's not more than just Robinhood, but yeah, the ability for some, for anyone to buy a portion of Amazon when they can't afford a $3,000 share of Amazon is awesome. That's amazing. Correct. Or even buying a fractional share of a $5.2 million Honus Swagger card for maybe $100 and owning a percentage of that. And yeah. even though it appreciates, you could still make money. You don't have to spill out $500 million or $5 million, but spill out maybe $100 bucks and still yeah. participate in the upside. Totally. So, Troy, if I want to buy an NFT, how do I actually do it? Like, what's the website I go to? <laughs> yeah. So, that's a good question. So, yeah. <laughs> So there's like websites, kind of think of it like a marketplace and there's like different marketplace out there. The really popular one, um, let me just double check. So I'll make sure I give you the right information. Um, let me see, I wrote this down.
And crypto is a whole nother thing. I got a call from my dad on Sunday asking, how do I buy Bitcoin? What do I actually do? Like, what's the website? <laughs> I was like, it's, coin, it's coinbase.com. <laughs> you go here, you wire some money and then you convert it and that's it. They're more than happy to convert your dollars into Bitcoin. And then, and then you, you can buy Tesla with it. And then you can buy Tesla <laughs> with it now. Yep. Did you guys see the article that if you bought, so if you bought the original 2015 or whatever your Tesla for $80,000, the original one that came out, it'd be worth whatever, it would be worth 25000 a day. But if instead you bought Tesla stock, it'd be worth like $5 million or something like that. Oh, oh my, my God. God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Tesla stock. There. I honestly think the stock market and the way crypto has gone, it's gone so well for everyone. That's part of what's driving these other asset classes. Yeah. Like if, if you're, if you're someone who's 25 and has bu been buying Bitcoin for the last seven years, you're worth a lot of money right now. Like yeah. it's, yeah. it is a lot. nuts. I, it terrifies me at Flowcast. How much money are our engineers worth? Like there, yeah. there are, we have engineers who are worth a lot of money and are kind of working for fun at this point. <laughs> like, I don't know if they have to. So Mike, you'll love this story. My co-founder, Marty, when we first raised our first series A in, in, uh, in case, excuse me, a $3 million raise. And he wanted to take all of that money and buy IPO shares in Google because it was around the time Google was IPOing. And had he done that, which would have been illegal per our contract, it yeah. would have been worth way more than building that company, busting our asses, all, working all night, doing all that kind of stuff forever. Yeah. Funny. How did he know? Like, I, I, don't, I have no idea what Google's reputation was at the time, but like, was at it? At the time, it was cranking already like it was pretty obvious like we, we were our office was right in the neighborhood of google and you could just see they were like expanding <laughs> okay you just look out the window like every building says google <laughs> oh, wow. that's uh well uh so founders are just crazy enough to, <laughs> to propose ideas yeah. like that yeah and i was just uh conservative enough to prevent them from doing it but it would have been a, yeah it could have been a good play it, it, it was <laughs> illegal per your funders but the next low cash run well, I've, I've signed those term sheets and you're not allowed to do that. That is definitely <laughs> definitely off the table with the VCs. I can't even buy a building, man. I'm trying to buy the old house. I can't make that happen. Troy, were you able to find the website? Yeah, so there's a couple websites out there. They're marketplaces for NFTs. So uh, like creators could go on those and um, you know um, list their artwork on there. And then what you could do is it's called OpenSea.io. That's one. That's pretty much the biggest one. Not the biggest one, but that's one of the most popular ones, OpenSea.io. Another one that's popular is called Rarible. It's R-A-R-I-B-L-E, like rare, rareable. And then the third one is called Super Rare. So there's different types of marketplaces out there. And the greatest thing is that you can see a whole list of different artworks. And if you want to actually buy the artwork, you need to fund the account, right? So in order to fund it, right now, the most popular coin to use is Ethereum. And Ethereum, you might be asking, why do you have to use Ethereum? Because it's also it's widely accepted by most artists. And secondly, Ethereum has a specific um, technical aspect to it. It's super technical. Let me tell you what like the acronym is. It's called ERC721. And it's a standard for the token, especially with Ethereum, where it allows creators to capture information on top of the coin when it's getting verified on the blockchain. What that means is, if you have ERC-721, which is a component of Ethereum, it allows you not only to attach um, the value to a coin, but attach the actual artwork that you're creating to the coin. Kind of like if you have a picture, you're attaching the JPEG to the coin. And when that transaction gets verified, it kind of 
verifies that, okay, this transaction is legit and it's legit because this artwork was attached to a transaction. So that's why people accept Ethereum. So what you're going to do is if you have Coinbase, which is kind of like, um, it's just an open marketplace for additional currencies, you could fund your OpenSea, which is the marketplace for NFT. You could fund that account with your Ethereum coins that come from Coinbase. And that's kind of how you buy artwork is you fund it with coins and then you buy the artwork with the coins that you funded from your digital wallet that comes from Coinbase. And that's kind of a, yeah, very, very technical, really interesting, but I'm sure as the months go by and more institutional investors get into it, we're talking about the banks and they validate it as legit type of transaction. Then you're going to start seeing this become a lot easier and you don't have to wait one or two days for your funds to clear from your bank to the digital coin wallet and then from the coin wallet to the actual marketplace like open um open sea <laughs> sorry hopefully i didn't well, lose we, a lot we, need, of we need to get in touch with those with those companies because coinbase is a very successful flowcast client it's been great having them on our application i think they're getting ready to you know they're doing big things um maybe yeah. we can talk to those <laughs> other ones my takeaway is we need to talk to the creative team and and create an NFT thing and go sell this, forget fundraising. Let's create some awesome <laughs> NFT and go sell that thing for a bunch of money. Yeah. That'd be amazing. I imagine with some SEC issues, but it's not a bad idea at all. <laughs> how, how do you, how do you do the accounting for that? Let's say, let's say we produce some amazing piece of artwork specific to the accounting industry and we sell it. Is that, is that income? Is this revenue we're taking in this year? What are the accounting implications of all that? <laughs> it's a tough one. Yeah, I don't, th I don't think question. there's guidance out around it yet. And there's bragging rights around that, Mike and Rob. Like, if you bought the first NFT issued by Flowcast, and Flowcast, you know, becomes that unicorn company, they're gonna be like, "Wow, I own the first piece of asset that's digitally produced by Flowcast." And the funny thing, Jack Dorsey, the CEO of Twitter, he actually sold his first tweet as an NFT. Um, Rob and Mike, what do you guess that first tweet by Jack Dorsey, who's the CEO of Twitter, sold for in the yeah. past month? It's curious. I well, I know I'm going to be wrong. I mean, just because of some of the numbers you've been throwing around, I don't know, like 70,000. <laughs> nice. <laughs> what do you think, Mike? Uh, I got um, 70,000. Um, a million. I, I don't A yeah. million. A million. So, you, so Mike's more close, but he's way, he's way off. It sold for 2.5 million. Jack Dorsey's first tweet. See, if we had this full discussion, I would have guessed like a hundred dollars. I thought about guessing like 70 million, but then I was like, no, no. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to be a jerk about it. Here, here's what, here's what we might have as the most valuable thing. I'm holding up my co-founder, Chris Slutie's rookie business <laughs> card here, his, his, his signed Rothstein cast card. And then our CTO, Colin Zanstra, his rookie card is his Flowcast business nice. card. So I got my sign, my sign Cullen Zanstra, my sign Chris Slutty, rookie cards over here. I love Let's it. go for a lot of money, especially if you get a uh, Cullen's MySpace uh, digital business card. He, yeah, he needs a digital one because engineers don't get business <laughs> cards in MySpace. So there's there's none of those in existence. So the Flowcast one is his rookie card. Hopefully his one and only business card of his entire career. That'd be wonderful. Yeah. And then also one more thing, like Mike and Rob. So I'm not like a licensed advi advisor, obviously. I can't like give uh, financial <laughs> advice out there. So I just want to let you know, for all the viewers listening to this, like Mike, Rob and I, we're not responsible for any decisions that you make. All we're doing is sharing information and any decisions you make on your own, please represent responsible, uh, responsibilities that's going to come along with making any financial decisions. Like I said, none of this podcast episodes are going to be for financial um, advice. But I do want to say is, 
if you um, have like, you want to throw around some fun money and just see where it goes and really enjoy it. I think one or 2% of your, you know, your net worth would be absolutely okay with throwing around into, you know, alternative assets, whether it's NFTs, whether it's collectibles like cars, sports cards, or even a purse, as long as you have the intention of one, it would, it might appreciate over time, which you can't really predict. But if you really are knowledgeable about it, you could have a more clear prediction through your knowledge base. And second, if you love and you enjoy what you invest in, for example, Mike invests in baseball cards because he absolutely enjoys it. Rob invests in uh, private companies because he enjoys being like a part of the growth phase and seeing it grow. Like if you enjoy what you do, even if you lose money, it's not going to hurt as much emotionally. And when it comes to investing, you want to take emotion out. But since we're emotional creatures, because we're human, it's going to happen in, you know, like, automatically. So if you could find something that you truly enjoy and that you could see a long-term growth potential, I think that's a win-win for any investment you make in the alternative asset space. But if you go for traditional like equities, like stocks, totally fine too. You might not just get the emotional happiness that you get from other alternative investments. But if you do like stocks and that gives you the emotional high that you would get, hey, win-win for you. So that's just like Different types of point of views. It's, it's the joy and, and love yeah. of it. It's also the understanding that gives you an advantage. So it's not enough to just love it. You also have to understand the mechanics of how people make money doing it. Otherwise, you get had for something. <laughs> Correct. Exactly. Some great, great points, Troy. And uh, so as we're editing this, we will bump that notion up to the front where this is not financial advice. We are just a couple of idiots who like putting our money into dumb things and do not <laughs> do not listen to us with any of this. We'll make sure we, we put that disclaimer up at the front of the episode here. Yeah. yeah. But all right. Troy, thank you so much for providing the feedback, man. This stuff's super interesting and like way out there. And I, I for both of our sakes, I hope the markets continue to go up. Rob, what was uh, any, anything interest you out of this one? Yeah, you know, the whole thing was interesting. I'm going to check out the NFT stuff. I wrote down those websites. I'm going to yeah. learn. I'm a lifelong learner and I really enjoyed being on here. And I think a lot of people listening to it are going to love like what they learned as well. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Troy, thank you so much for your advice. Rob, thank you for, for hopping on and providing feedback. Appreciate it, guys. That was fun. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Troy. Yeah, anytime. Right. Bye. That was fun. Thank you.